Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. And so I want to invite you to the book of James this morning, James chapter 5. We have been in this series for about nine or ten weeks now. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's one underneath a chair rack in front of you or nearby. Uh, pull that out, use that, page 952 will get you right to James chapter 5. We have been journeying paragraph by paragraph through this book. And when you, when you commit to that kind of preaching, when you are just letting the next paragraph dictate to you what's going to be preached, sometimes you get to preach some stuff that you wouldn't normally pick. Sometimes you gotta, you got to dig into some more challenging texts, and you've got to just lean into maybe the challenge or the weight of a text, and today's text is going to be just that, and maybe you read ahead, uh, knowing what our rhythm and what our pattern here is, and you got to chapter 5, and you thought, all right, John, what are you going to do with this one? <laughs> How are you going to handle this one? And so uh, several times now through this book, I've had to give some preliminary comments before I preach a passage, and I'm going to do that again this morning. Three preliminary comments before we dive into James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. By the way, I've entitled this message, Money Pitfalls. Money Pitfalls. First thing I would say is that this particular paragraph is Pastor James's strongest rebuke in the entire letter. You can feel it. You'll, you'll, you'll sense in a moment when I read this, he's, he's writing with, with condemnation, for the people that he's writing to. There's no grace in this text. Which leads me to the second comment, and that is that James is writing to unbelievers who are rich. Wealthy unbelievers. Now that's unique, because most of this letter, really, aside from a few comments along the way, this has all been written to believers. These are Jewish Christians in the first century who are trying to get the gospel on the ground and understand what it looks like, but he's going to kind of come over here to a different audience, and he's going to speak to unbelieving, the unbelieving wealthy about how they're, they're misusing their riches. Now, this is still profitable. If you remember the words of Jesus in Luke 16, Jesus said, No servant can serve two masters. He will either serve God or he will serve money. And the audience that James is writing to, they have picked their master. And their master is money. But that doesn't mean that the Jewish Christians can't still learn and be admonished from this particular paragraph. We can learn, as they could learn, from the mistakes of these rich people who were misusing their money. But the second thing that I believe that the Christians are learning as James is speaking to an unbelieving audience is they are learning that God will avenge the injustices of the rich that, rich that were done to them. God will not be mocked. But the third comment I want to make is that God is not against wealth. But he is against the misuse of wealth. Even in Deuteronomy 8 verse 18 you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. So God is not against 
wealth or riches. We could survey even the New Testament and we would see people of means and people of wealth that God used to advance the kingdom, but he is against the misuse of wealth and that's what's going on in this particular paragraph and that's why we are going to sense and see and feel the weight of the judgment coming on these rich people for their misuse and even their abuse of the riches that they had in their life. So as one writer said, applying this text to all wealthy people would be a misreading of this passage. Okay, those are some preliminary comments. So now let's jump in. James chapter 5, follow along with me if you would. Verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. It's a heavy text. We kind of sense it. We can feel it a little bit. He's speaking to the wealthy unbelievers who were using and misusing and abusing their wealth. So we want to talk today about money pitfalls. Here's the big idea. If you're keeping notes, writing some things down, it's going to sit over top of the text. We'll unpack it for the next 30 or 35 minutes or so. Gospel-grounded people know and avoid financial pitfalls. Gospel-grounded people know and avoid financial pitfalls. Now, in 1982, Activision came out with an Atari game called Pitfall. Pitfall. Anybody here a product of the 80s? One, two, three. Oh, a couple of you. Okay. I'm more or less a product of the 90s. I was born in uh, 83, so I didn't really kind of start to live my best life until the 90s. Okay. But if you, were, if you were kind of living your best life in the 80s and you were playing Atari, maybe you played this game. I've got a little video clip of this here just for nostalgia's sake. This is the game Pitfall from Atari. And the, the guy there that's running through this particular scene here, his name is Pitfall Harry. And Pitfall Harry, there he goes. Pitfall Harry is trying to avoid these various different hazards, whether they are the logs that are rolling or the crocodiles in the moat or the scorpions or the snakes. He's jumping over them. He's trying to avoid them. He's swinging on the vine. And as Pitfall Harry navigates through each of these scenes, he is trying to collect the treasure. And he's trying to do it in under 20 minutes while not lo losing his three lives. And so if I were to summarize this particular game, which by the way, pit, this game Pitfall ranked number one on the charts for video games in 1982. Now there wasn't probably a lot of competition back in the early 80s, but this was it, okay? This was it. Everybody had to have this game. 
So if I were to summarize this game Pitfall, Pitfall Harry is navigating each level, collecting treasure along the way, while avoiding the pitfalls before time runs out. Thanks, Ashwin. You can go to the next slide. We're all getting distracted by Pitfall Harry. (laughs) Hoping that he will make it before his 20 minutes runs out. You know, that kind of sounds a lot like our relationship with life and money. We're navigating life, collecting the treasure along the way, trying to avoid the pitfalls before the time runs out. You know, the amazing thing is, is we struggle oftentimes to talk about money. We struggle to be real about our finances. I mean, we'll talk about our our marriages. We'll talk about our kids. We'll talk about the struggle of teenagers. We'll talk about the loneliness of being an empty nester. We'll talk about the struggle with sin and temptation. And boy, we'll get real about all these different things. But when's the last time you sat down with somebody and were just really honest about how you spend your money? It's, it's personal, isn't it? We don't really want to do that and expose ourselves in that way. And yet Jesus talked more about money than heaven and hell combined. Money is a significant topic in our lives. As a matter of fact, Jesus makes a strong connection between our money and our discipleship. And so I just kind of want to level the, the playing field here today that no matter where you might be in your relationship with money, whether you're crushing it or whether you're falling into some of those pitfalls along the way, we must allow the gospel to come to bear on our finances. Understand what are the pitfalls and then avoid them. And so gospel-grounded people, that's what we're desiring to be. That's what James has been speaking to us about for several weeks now. Gospel-grounded people know and avoid financial pitfalls. Now the text is going to help us to know them, to identify them. And then for each of the pitfalls that are identified, there are four of them in the text, I am going to give to you a gospel principle that is going to help us to avoid them. So we are going to know them from the text, and then the gospel is going to help us to understand how we can counter those pitfalls and avoid them in our lives. So the outline is going to look like this. I've fallen into a financial pitfall when, number one, I waste wealth by keeping it for myself. I have fallen into a financial pitfall when I waste wealth by keeping it for myself. I want you to see how they were hoarding their money in verses 1 through 3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. He is speaking with judgment language. Then he says, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, and your gold and silver have corroded. Three evidences here that they are hoarding, that they are keeping their wealth for themselves. It's articulated right there in the text. Their riches were rotted, their garments were moth-eaten, and their gold and silver have corroded. Now, how do riches rot? The word riches there is a general term for wealth, and our wealth or our riches can rot when wealth and riches are agricultural, crops. Many of these, the wealthiest, would have been land, landlords. They would have owned land, and they would have, they would have hired out farmers to, to man this land and to work these fields and to, and to make a living from those crops. And so they had so much excess crop and so much excess food that they would rather it just go to waste than to give to people in need. So their riches were rotting. 
Then their garments were moth-eaten. Well, which garments do moths eat? The ones in your closet. The ones that you are not wearing, right? These garments would have been the outer garments. They would have oftentimes been a display of their wealth and their means. They would have, they would have had jewels that would have lined them. They would have sometimes even been heirlooms that would, would have been passed down. And they had so many of these outer garments that they're just sitting in the closet. You can only wear one garment at a time, right? And the moths were eating them. And then their gold and their silver was corroded. The word corroded there means it speaks of a rusting. Now this is interesting because gold and silver cannot rust. And so some suggest that the coins of the day would not have been pure gold and pure silver, but that they would have been mixed with some alloy. And so because of that, they could have seen some rust. But also I believe James is speaking figuratively here to just the temporary nature of all things. All of the gold and all of the wealth and all of the things that we might amass in this life will eventually deteriorate. We've all experienced this. Stuff breaks, things that we had to have, things that we just had to get, all of a sudden they lose their excitement. They're not as glamorous to us. They don't mean as much to us as maybe they once did. Amy and I recently took a trip, and on our trip, I, we had to rent a car, and so I decided I was going to rent a Tesla. You know, I'm never going to be able to afford a Tesla for myself, so I figured I can afford to at least rent one and kind of see what all the hype's about. So I rented a Tesla, and I'm, I'm a bit of like a, a gearhead, a motorhead. I'm, I'm intrigued by cars. I've always been ever since I was a kid. And so, like, the Tesla is just a different driving experience altogether. The immediate torque of that electric power. That single speed transmission. I mean, it was, I was making Amy sick by experimenting with that torque on the freeway. Can you, she's like, can you just slow down? <laughs> You're making me nauseous. Boy, I was having a good time with that Tesla. After about three days, I turned that Tesla back in, and you know what? It was just a car. I mean, it got me from where I was to where I needed to be. And so many times, we've got to have stuff we got to have the gold and the silver. we got to have the outer garments. we got to have all these th- things and amass all of this wealth in this life. But ultimately, it all just sort of corrodes and deteriorates and loses its value because all things, ultimately, in this life are temporary. So here we are keeping all of our stuff as it loses value day by day. And then James says that their material wealth would stand in judgment against them. Look at the second half of verse 3. He says, And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Apocalyptic language here because of the impending coming judgment. The word corrosion there, it's different from the word that comes before it. This word corrosion is only used twice in Scripture, both by James, and the other time he uses this word, it's speaking about the tongue and the poison of our tongue. The poison and the corrosion will be evidence against you. And then he summarizes, and he says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Now the last days were the, were the days from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. And they speak of the impending Uh, imminent coming return of Jesus. We're still in those days, by the way. They have laid up treasure in the last days, so in light of Jesus coming back, all they could do was 
amass all of this wealth and accumulate all of this stuff for themselves. You've probably seen the show Hoarders. These people who just kind of have a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of trash, just kind of wall to wall, and for whatever reason, they all seem to have cats too. I'm not sure what's up with the cats, but they just sort of are drawn to these hoarders. No offense, by the way, if you have cats. But every once in a while, you'll find a hoarder who has been keeping all of this stuff, and it actually has some value. Alexander Kennedy Miller, when he died, they didn't even realize he was a hoarder until after he died, and they got into his home and onto his property, and he'd been building these sheds and these barns, and they got into them, and they saw that he had some pretty valuable stuff. Over 30 antique and classic cars, nearly $2 million in gold and silver and stock certificates. He had just sort of accumulated all of this stuff and they considered it a treasure when they got in and were able to go through all of the things that he had hoarded. But here's the saddest part for Alexander. He had no heirs. He left it to nobody. It was just a waste of wealth. And what James is reprimanding here is this financial pitfall when we are accumulating and then wasting our wealth by just keeping it for us. And so if that's the financial pitfall, what's the gospel principle to counter it? Here's the gospel principle. I steward wealth by investing it in the kingdom. I steward wealth by investing it in the kingdom. You might recall the words of Jesus. Jesus, of course, was the half-brother of James who's writing this letter. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, 20, But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. No doubt James had these words in mind as he was penning James chapter 5. Then Jesus says in the following verse, For where your treasure is, there your heart is will be also. It's possibly the truest, one of the truest indicators of where you are in your apprenticeship with Jesus is what you do with your money. How you spend it, how you steward it, how you are budgeting it, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And so my question for you this morning is, are you just spending down here or are you laying up there? These that James was rebuking, they were all about this life and all about the stuff. And James is saying, you're just wasting it. The moths are eating it. It's corroding and it's rusting away. It's rotting in the fields. What, what use is it if, if all that you do with your stuff is benefit you? But instead, in the words of Jesus, don't just store it up down here, but lay it up. Lay up treasure in heaven because up there, moths don't eat their garments and rust does not corrode the metal. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So give to what is moving God's mission forward. Give to what is helping spread the gospel and make known the good news of Jesus. Give to what will make Jesus more known here in this life because that is advancing his kingdom. The world measures success by how much we accumulate down here. God measures success by how much we send on ahead. The pitfall is wasting wealth by keeping it for myself. The gospel principle is stewarding wealth by investing in the kingdom. Number two, I've fallen into a financial pitfall 
when I gain wealth at the expense of other people. When I gain wealth at the expense of other people. I want you to see it in verse 4. James says, behold, which means look at this or pay attention to what I'm about to say. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Two witnesses that will stand in the courtroom and testify against these wealthy unbelievers. The wages, he personifies the wages here. They will stand in the courtroom and testify against them. And then the prayers of the defrauded harvesters will stand and testify against these wealthy unbelievers. So these wages that are being kept back, well, here's where they're getting the money to buy all those extra garments. They have day laborers who are working the field. And these day laborers were essential, essential to the agricultural economy of James's day. Now, what was unique about these day laborers is they, they had to get paid every single day. They weren't getting paid every other week. They weren't getting paid... Uh, twice a month, anything like that. They, they had to get paid every single day. So they would go into the field, they would work, then they would go to their boss and they would stand in line and they would get paid and then go to the market and they would buy their food and they would buy what they needed. Then they would go home and they would feed their family. What was happening is they were not, these, these rich people were not paying these day laborers at the end of the day. And quite literally, their lives were on the line. Because they couldn't go and buy the food that they needed, their daily bread. God in his law in Deuteronomy has strong words against this type of oppression. He said in Deuteronomy 24, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it. Lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. The wages that they were keeping back were crying out against them, but then also the prayers of the defrauded harvesters. Look at what he says in the second half of verse 4. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The King James Version transliterates that, the Lord of Sabaoth, which literally means host or angelic armies. The God of angel armies hears the prayers of these that you are defrauding, rich people. You're keeping back their wealth that they rightfully have earned, and, and those prayers are being heard by the general of generals. When I was a kid, we would sometimes get into these fights on the playground, and kids oftentimes would try to one-up each other through these, these you know, these these verbal one-ups, so that one kid would say, well, my brother's bigger than your brother. And the other kid would be like, well, yeah, well, my dad's bigger than your dad. This is like the ultimate one-up here, where James is like, well, my God's bigger than your God. <laughs> like, my God is the, the God of angel armies. My God is the Lord of hosts. My God, who at a moment's call can beckon these angels to come in and to rescue and to redeem those that you are oppressing. You better be careful what you do. God says, I hear their prayers. The cries of the oppressed never fall on deaf ears with God. When Cain killed Abel, God said, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. 
When Sarah forced out Hagar into the wilderness with her son, the angel came and comforted Hagar and said, I have heard the cries of your son. Our heart breaks when we hear of and consider those who have been oppressed and those who have been enslaved and those who are being taken advantage of. And at times we might think that God doesn't hear. At times we might think that God is indifferent. But let me, let me encourage you, child of God, with this truth and this reality today that the cries of the oppressed do not fall on deaf ears with God. Our American history is stained by the sinful disregard of our African-American brothers and sisters who were sold into, the, into slavery at the hands of the rich. And our, our hearts ache when we consider that that's a part of our history. But their prayers were heard. And even today, their prayers are still being sung by many. But today, slavery continues on our streets and in our cities, oftentimes going unnoticed by the general public, slavery continues with the dehumanizing sexual exploitation of boys and of girls and of young women. And our hearts break when we consider that reality. And by the way, we should do everything within our power to try to rescue and to try to help and to try to be a part of the solution and not just turn a blind eye. But I want to remind you that the cry of the oppressed does not fall on deaf ears and God hears their prayers too. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The general of generals hears the cry of the oppressed, of the abused, and of the enslaved, which means that judgment is coming for the oppressor, for the abuser, and for the one who has enslaved. And so this financial pitfall is we are trying to gain wealth at the expense of other people. So what is the gospel principle to counter this? The gospel principle is that instead I must leverage wealth for the benefit of other people. I must leverage whatever wealth that God has given to me in this life, I must leverage it and find ways to use it for the benefit, not the exploitation, but the benefit of other people. So ask yourself this question, how can I leverage what God has given to me financially or maybe in my resources or maybe in my job? How can you leverage what God has given to you for the benefit of someone else? How can you use what you have to help lift someone up out of oppression or out of a need? Loving people like Jesus, it's going to cost you. This is the gospel. There's a story in Luke 10 about a man who's not even given a name. He's given a title, the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan is traveling on his way on a, on a, on a path, and as he comes upon a man that is uh, beaten and bruised and he has been robbed and he's left for dead. That good Samaritan comes upon him and he stops and he tends to his needs and he pours the oil and the wine which would have been expensive in that day and he puts him on his donkey and he carries him to the inn and he changes his own agenda and his own schedule and he spends the night in that inn and then when he gets up the next day he goes to the innkeeper and he says I'm going to give you two days wages to take care of this man and oh by the way here's my credit card if you spend anything beyond or over and above just charge it to my account. 
Who are we to think that we can love like Jesus and it not cost us anything? It cost Jesus his very life to give us the gospel that we enjoy. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you and I through his poverty might be made rich. That is the gospel and that is the gospel that informs our financial decisions. And sometimes it's going to cost when we are going to live and love like Jesus. I have fallen into a financial pitfall when I gain wealth at the expense of other people. So instead, I respond with this gospel principle that I want to leverage my wealth for the benefit of other people. Number three. The third pitfall we, hear, we see here is in verse five. I have fallen into a financial pitfall when I abuse wealth through selfish opulence. When I abuse wealth. Through this excessive, over-the-top, selfish opulence. Look at verse 5. He's continuing his rebuke of these rich unbelievers. He says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Luxury, it means softness. It's this idea of ease and enjoyment. Self-indulgence, they had just done the full plunge into living for themselves. By the way, he's not speaking here of buying things that you need. He's not speaking here of even just enjoying life in general. He's speaking of this overly excessive lifestyle when you know that there are people around you that are impoverished and you know that there are people around you that are in need. As a matter of fact, you've been causing some of that need through your opulent living. That's what he's speaking about. Then he continues and he says, you have fattened your hearts, this internal self-centeredness in the day of slaughter. That is graphic language for the impending divine coming judgment of God. Babylon was a city in the Old Testament, a wicked nation that rejected and rebelled against God. And God used similar terminology with that nation. He said, let them go down to the slaughter Woe to them, for their day has come, the time of their punishment. That term slaughter, it's a very graphic term that speaks of God's coming judgment. By the way, child of God, can I remind you that our good Savior was led as a lamb to the slaughter for you and for me. That he took the divine judgment of God on our behalf so that we could be set free. But James wants them to know that day's coming. You are abusing your wealth by living this opulent life when, when that divine slaughter is coming to your life. So the problem here was not so much what they possessed. The problem was what other people did not possess. They had the ability. They had the means. They had the riches. They had the wealth. And yet all of these people in and around them are living a life of poverty and need. Herein was the great sin of Sodom. The great sin of Sodom is not what most churches preach about the city of Sodom. We don't have to guess what the great sin of Sodom was because Scripture actually tells us in Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease but did not aid the poor and the needy. That is the great sin of Sodom. They had wealth. 
They had opulence. They had means. And yet they were not meeting the needs of the poor. And so God sent judgment to that city for their lack of compassion and their lack of hospitality and their self-indulgent lifestyle. So it is an abuse of wealth to indulge myself knowing that there are those around me who have needs that I can meet. When I was a kid, I worked for my dad. I've shared a little bit about my dad, and he's, he, he had a business growing up. He's recently sold it and retired, but for 30-plus years, he, he, he had this business, and as a kid, as a teenager, I used to work for my dad. And my favorite job working for my dad was driving the forklift. I loved it. Maybe it was, again, just because of my love for cars, and it was just like as a 14-year-old, this was like my version of being able to drive early. And so I would find every and any excuse to operate the forklift because, first of all, I could sit down. and didn't have to be running around doing, like, the manual labor. I could let the forklift do the labor. But I just, I, I just kind of enjoyed that experience as a kid. Well, every once in a while, my dad, when he wasn't looking, I would take that forklift out to the back parking lot, and I would do burnouts with the forklift. And I would see just kind of how big of a track I could make with those slick tires on that forklift. I mean, that was just kind of where my, where my mind was as a 14-year-old. Like, that was cool, you know? It is an abuse of a forklift to use it for burnouts. Like, that is not the intended use of a forklift. Forklifts are meant to be used to pick up pallets and to move them. Can I say that our wealth is not meant to be used just for our selfish opulence and our excessive living? It is an abuse of my wealth to simply use it to benefit myself when I know that you or someone else has a need. When it's within my own power and ability to help meet that need, and yet instead of meeting your need, I'm just going to go on living my life and just kind of storing up for myself and enjoying all the stuff that I want to enjoy. It's an abuse. It's a misuse of the wealth that God has given to you and to me. So enjoy your vacation. This is not a message against that. Enjoy your newer car. Buy the clothing that you want. Enjoy, enjoy your $6 cup of coffee. Like if This is not a message saying you can't ever enjoy living and enjoy life. But who do you know in need that, that you are turning your face away from because you would rather have those things than help that person in need? That's the abuse. And that's what was going on here in James chapter 5. So what is the gospel principle? If the pitfall is I'm abusing my wealth through selfish opulence, what is the gospel principle? The gospel principle is this. I release wealth through selfless sacrifice. I release my wealth through selfless sacrifice. When is the last time you gave something up to help someone else in need? There was a pastor one time who was having a conversation with a farmer. And the pastor asked the farmer, he said, if you had 100 cows, would you give 50 of them to God? And the farmer said, yeah, I'd give 50 of my cows to God if I, if I had 100 cows. And the pastor said, well, what if you had 1,000 chickens? Would you give God 500 of those chickens? The farmer thought for a minute. He's like, you know, yeah, if I had 1,000 chickens, I'd give God 500 of those chickens. Then the pastor said, well, what if you had two pigs? Would you give God one of them? The farmer said, now, come on, preacher, that ain't fair. You know I got two pigs. (laughs) 
you know, we're willing to like theorize about sacrifice and talk about sacrifice and hear preaching about sacrifice. But man, when it comes and hits home, we're like, I don't know about that. Like, you know, I got two pigs. I don't know that I want to give one of them up for somebody else. We got to have our stuff, don't we? We got to have all our streaming services. We got to have our brand name clothing. We got to have all these things in this life. And all of a sudden we start thinking, man, if we're going to advance this gospel, man, if we're going to make a, a kingdom impact in the city of Tempe, it might require that I give some of these things up so that I can benefit some other people. We are here to release our wealth through selfless sacrifice. And can I just say that the gospel is what it is because Jesus was willing to sacrifice. We don't have the gospel apart from sacrifice. Paul in Philippians says that Jesus emptied himself. There is no gospel apart from sacrifice. Church, understand this. God has work for us to do. There are, there are churches that need to be planted. There are missionaries that need to be sent. There is a City Hope Resource Center that needs to be funded and get off the ground. There are still children walking the halls of Spercali Elementary, a tenth of a mile from here, with holes in their shoes. And we are looking for opportunities and ways to help reach those needs. But for those needs to be met, it's going to take some Christians who are here not to amass wealth down below, but to send some on up ahead and to release through selfless sacrifice the financial wealth that God has given to us to help advance the kingdom. We are here to make a difference. And it's going to require sacrifice. It's not going to happen apart from that selfless sacrifice. Gospel-grounded people know and avoid financial pitfalls. These verses are helping us to know them, and the gospel principles are helping us to avoid them. Here's the fourth one. Here's the last one. Verse 6, I've fallen into a financial pitfall when I acquire wealth by injustice toward others. By injustice toward others. In his final rebuke, James says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. They would have rather taken someone to court and seen, seen them sentenced to death than jeopardize any of their wealth. Now the righteous person here, these were the Christians. As a matter of fact, in chapter 2, we, we studied this several weeks ago. In chapter 2 and verse 6, James says to the Christians, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you've been called? And in true gospel display, you see what these Christians do at the end of verse 6? He, the Christian, the righteous person, does not resist you, the unbelieving wealthy. They're modeling the words of Jesus' teaching when Jesus said, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. They were modeling the gospel to these unbelieving wealthy people by not resisting. God is just, and he intends his people to live lives of justice. The Hebrew word for personal righteousness is the same Hebrew word for outward justice. In other words, to God, they're identical. They're the same. My personal righteousness to God is the same as my outward justice. I cannot claim to be righteous and not also help to meet the needs of the poor and the oppressed. 
And by meeting the needs of the poor and the oppressed, that is part of my own personal righteousness and right living before God. They're one and the same. God's righteousness through his people means that injustices should not be happening. The prophet Jeremiah said, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice. So what is the gospel principle in response to this injustice? The gospel principle is this. I dispense wealth without partiality. This is my response to the pitfall. I dispense wealth without partiality. Maybe the truest test of your generosity and mine is whether or not I'm willing to give to somebody who can do nothing for me in return. Without partiality. I'm not just giving to those who can benefit me. I'm not just giving to those who I hope that one day will be able to give back to me. I'm giving to those who can do nothing for me. Without partiality. There's no injustice here. And this again is the gospel. The ground is level at the cross. Jesus came to us in our brokenness and in our weakness, not because we could have returned the favor and done anything for him, but because he is a good and a gracious and benevolent God. And so now in Galatians 3, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And because the ground is level at the cross, the ground should also be level with our generosity. Impartial. We're not sizing people up and saying, well, I can be generous to that person, well, but not that person. They got themselves in that situation. Impartial in the way that we dispense the wealth that God has given to us. Well, that is James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. These are the pitfalls. But before we close our Bibles and wrap up this time together, I want to give you some bonus content. Can I do that? Think of this as like a bonus level for Pitfall Harry, right? You get to the end of the 20 minutes and there's like this extra level with some extra treasures. I want to give you some bonus content that's not in the text here, but I believe that will help us in understanding and stewarding the financial wealth that God has given to us. Here's the first. Govern spending with a budget. Govern spending with a budget. Either your money is going to master you or you're going to master your money. And if you refuse to live by a budget, chances are your money is mastering you. Your money is telling you what you can and can't do. So learn what it means to live life by a budget because when you live life by a budget, you can tell your money where you want it to go. You can tell your money that you want it to go to kingdom advancement. You can tell your money that you want it to go to people in need and you're not just trying to keep up month after month. Number two, get out of debt. James doesn't say it, at least not explicitly. Maybe it's between the lines somewhere, but I'm going to say it. Get on a debt or just stay on a debt. Like you don't need that credit card. Because if you are sitting under mountains of debt, guess what you cannot do? Or guess what you will, you will, you will not feel the freedom to do? Give. You won't feel the freedom to give and be generous to those in need because you are sitting under that mountain. And so you are enslaved to that debt. So get out of debt and stay out of debt. By the way, there are practical plans that you can study and, and research that will help you to do that. Number three, put God's kingdom first. Put God's kingdom first. By putting it first, you are communicating that this is a priority. By putting God's kingdom first, you are communicating that you trust God. Put it first. 
Put it at the top of your budget. Make sure that it is a priority in your financial stewardship. And then number four, bonus content here. Only spend after you have applied James's life principle. Remember James's life principle from last week? If God wills. So don't make that purchase until you've asked God, God, do you want me to make this purchase? Don't make that big expense until you've said, God, are you in this? And if God says no, don't. If God says yes, then move forward with it. But filter those decisions through that life principle. God, if, if you are in this, if this is your will, I will make this financial decision. Quick commercial plug here. In June, we are going to be hosting Financial Peace University. And if you would like some additional help with respect to stewardship, to budgeting, to getting out of debt, that class would be a wonderful class for you to take. There is some upfront expense to it, but don't say that you can't afford it. Because trust me, you can't afford not to if you are in some financial struggles right now. You can register for that and get signed up for it. But June 6th, that's going to start because we believe that where there is financial freedom, there is kingdom advancement. And as we understand how to steward well the, the, the wealth and the riches that God has given to us, we avoid the pitfalls and we allow God to work in our lives to advance his kingdom through us. And so in conclusion, I want to leave you with Paul's words, 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19. I'll put it up here on the screen for you. Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So here's that big idea. Gospel-grounded people know and avoid financial pitfalls. We've walked through all four of them here. It's, it's a heavier text. We've sat in that. We've felt that a little bit. But I believe that the gospel principle helps us not only to avoid the pitfall, but also to steward well the finances that God has given to us. Pitfall Harry navigates each level, collects the treasure, avoids the pitfalls and tries to do it before the time runs out. And you and I are doing the same. So we want to take this text and we want to learn to live from this text. So three questions by way of conclusion here this morning that I hope will help the Spirit of God to make application on this text. Number one, have you received the riches of the gospel? Have you received the riches of the gospel? Jesus, yes, he was led to the divine judgment. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter for you and for me. He was willing to lay down his life in sacrifice. He was willing to pay the ultimate cost so that we could live a life of freedom in Christ. But have you received that free gift? If you have not received that gift, friend, that gift can be yours today by faith. If you will just believe that Jesus did that for you, you can have your sins removed and you can have the life of Christ given to you. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. Your attendance here this morning does not somehow gain you greater favor and merit with God. By simple faith in the finished work of Jesus, that gift can be yours. And if you have not yet received the riches of the gospel, would you do that today? Trust 
Jesus alone. If you are here today as a follower of Jesus, we use the term disciple. It's the idea of apprentice. My second question is for you. And I I want you to dream a little bit here. This question's a little bit different. But how would your life be different if you stewarded your money by gospel principles? What, What would be different in your life? Just dream a little bit. Just hope a little bit. Just think a little bit. If, if, if your life were not the financial mess that it is right now, how would your life be different? What would your generosity look like? What would happen to your level of stress? I mean, let's just get, let's just get real for a minute. How would your faith play a part? What bad, unhealthy habits would change and look different in your life? Let the Spirit of God help you to answer that question because I believe that He wants to give you the hope to start making the right financial decisions and moving in the right financial direction. And then number three, what is one money decision that you could make today to help advance God's kingdom? Just one. One financial decision one decision that affects your budget that would help to advance God's kingdom because we don't just want to accumulate stuff down here. We want to lay up treasure up there, as Jesus said. Whatever that one decision is, let the Spirit of God speak that to you. Let the Spirit of God lay that on your heart. Whatever that is, take it. Respond in faith, believing, and take it. And trust that God will use you. You might not feel like you've got a whole lot of wealth. You've got, you might feel like you don't have a whole lot of riches here below. But listen, we have much to give to others and to the advancement of God's kingdom for Christ's glory. As we allow the gospel to get traction in our life, we will both know financial pitfalls and we will avoid them. And so I trust that God will continue to do that work in our lives. Can we pray together? God, thank you again for just these moments that we have had. Thank you for this text. It's, it's been a heavier text. It's been a weightier text, but it has been a helpful text. So, Spirit, we trust you to continue to do the work that you need to do in our lives, to continue to work and to transform us and to change us by your gospel so that we can live the lives of financial freedom that you want us to live. God, will thank you for what you do and for what you continue to do in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at citypointaz. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, Go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.